Retail Revolution is a special limited podcast created specifically for retailing and service design, a unique course that is part of the Fashion Management Graduate Program at Parsons School of Design in New York City. Each episode features in-depth conversations with guest experts in omni-channel retailing with myriad perspectives, technology, consumer engagement, data analytics, merchandising, and more. We pay special attention to the short and long-term challenges and implications of COVID-19 and potential opportunities to rethink retail's future. Retail Revolution is produced by Joshua Williams and hosted by Christopher Lacey. Both are assistant professors in the School of Fashion at Parsons. Welcome to Retail Revolution podcast, where we discuss all things pertaining to retail and service design. I'm your host, Christopher Lacey, and joining me today is Shia Fang, an expert on the movement of the China market and CEO of the How Consulting. Thank you so much, Shia, for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having me here. I'm so excited to have the conversation. Me as well. You know, I have to say, I'm going to, to tell all of all of our listeners, you and I met a couple of years ago when you joined us at Barney's New York, and mm-hmm. uh, we clicked right away. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, we both have an affinity for meditation, nature, <laughs> life, energy. So, you know, when, when we started this, I, I knew that I wanted you on this podcast for multiple reasons. And I, I want to kick it off to you to start with talking about really your career trajectory, because I think that's quite interesting. And one of the reasons I wanted your voice on here with us. Sure. So hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Xia Feng in the American way. In Chinese, it's Feng Xia. I'm native Chinese from Shanghai. Um, but I lived, studied, worked uh, in the U.S. and Europe now almost for 18 years. Currently, I'm living in New York, um, but I always think myself as a global citizen. So born in China, have a home in the world. And talking about my career, I actually got into, um, I didn't start with, with fashion. I was trained as a journalist first. Then as a, like an admin um, in, in, in China, back in Shanghai, many, many years ago. So I started to work in PR and advertising industry first. That was the late 90s. So I was um, managing accounts like Park Gamble, Unilever, Coca-Cola. And at that time, I, saw, I was trained by those brands um, of the very classic brand management. So that lasted for about five years. I learned a lot. And one day I decided that I want to go to see the country where all those amazing brands uh, were originated, which is the U.S. So I came and I went to UNC Chapel Hill first for, for my MBA. And since I kind of did a communication and marketing, I want to explore very different fields. So I actually, um, I was concentrating in MBA, I was concentrating supply chain and finance. And it kind of really kind of rounded up my skill at that time and it made a lot of good friends. So um, out of the, the business school, I got a job with Serity Branded Apparel. So Serity had like brands like Hanes, 
champion. They own the coach at some time. So I was international business manager、um, there, and it was really good opportunity because for someone who just came to the U.S. and who was who just started in the sort of apparel industry, it really gave me a, a very broad view of each step on the value chain. So I understood. How a decision、um, in the upstream of the value chain, like what kind of fabric you use, would impact on something very downstream, like on packaging. So that was great experience for me. And two years later, I was recruited by a company which、uh, which is called VF Corporation. So VF owns brands like the North Face, Vans, Timberland. Um, they used only and Wrangler. They spun it off recently. At that time, they just formed a new department, which was called corporate strategy, and that was 2008、uh, when the financial crisis happened. So you know, I I I love to explore different fields. I say, yeah, why not strategy? I would like to see what it meant. So I went there, and I never thought I would have worked for a company、um, for ten years because back in China at that time, like, people were switching jobs every two years. So I kind of <laughs> like was used to that. <laughs> so I really stayed in VF for ten years, amazing ten years. But because I was, you know, the nature of the job, we were more like interior, like internal kind of managerial consulting kind. So I was able to. Uh, like work on very cool projects.、Um, one day this brand, the other day the other another brand. This region, another region, and also、um, saw all kinds of different problems a brand may counter over、um, its different brand developmental phase. I was very fortunate. I was also able to move、um, around the regions. I I started in Greensboro,、uh, North Carolina. Then、um, the company sent me to Hong Kong for almost you know nine ten months to help the VP of pres、uh, the VP of、uh, the president of Asia to to look at some growth initiatives for Li and Wrangler. Then I came back, start to the US. I started work、uh, work on some European projects. And then I moved to、uh, Switzerland. This is where VF's European and headquarters is. So I was there for five years.、Um, I started with strategy, but very quickly I went into digital and e-commerce. When I left, I was VP of digital development for all the VF brands and in in Europe. So I think after you know、um, so many. Moons and a lot of bottles of Italian wine. I decided to come back、uh, to 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 the U.S.、Uh, by the way, I love Italian wine, and、uh, and I I came back to to New York and started with Barney's. I was Barney's、uh, employee number one for for international. And this is where、um, Chris and I. We met. I was overseeing all the、um, business outside the U.S., and we decided phase one would be very digitally and e-commerce first to raise Barney's awareness、um, outside the U.S.、Um, it went very well actually at the beginning, but very soon I think Barney's encountered、um, some very severe financial issues, and then、um, Barney's、uh, was bought by a different company、uh, last year. But at that time,、um, I always I always want to do something on my own. So when Barney's come come ended,、uh, my first reaction、uh, was 
now it's time for me to start something on my own. And, um, you know, I always want to be a bridge between the East and the West, uh, giving my background and experience. So, so I started consulting, the how consulting, to, to provide a trusted service to Western businesses and brands to succeed in China by bridging the cultural and the operational gaps for them. So that's a long summary of my of my career trajectory. Shaw, that is an amazing, you know, career trajectory. And, and I want to focus in on it a little bit because our student cohort population is uh, 98% female uh, for this program. And we have 68% that are international with more than half of that coming from Asian countries uh, or the the continent of Asia. And I want to talk about your experience navigating the U.S. market workforce, switching your mentality for strategy and engaging with people. I mean, what is that like? I mean, I, I, I think there's something to be said for that, especially to, to a student population who might be having the same experience you are having or want to understand how you navigated that experience. Yeah, that's an excellent question. It sparked all kinds of different things in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> it was at the beginning, it was really not that easy because I think a lot of probably your students can relate to that um, for uh, a foreigner to stay in the U.S. work, first you had all kinds of issues uh, like visa, work permit, these kind of things. But assume you you got over that, and um, then very quickly um, there, I think I, I, at that time um, I faced some, I would say like big cultural challenge. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, quick enough to um, to gain the hard skills um, at work. But then it very quickly, it was very clear to me um, and to my boss, it was the softer skills, uh, the confidence in myself, the communication skills. How do I frame a question? How do I interact with, with people that matter the most? And especially as uh, we're kind of like internal managerial consulting and all the people I worked with on a day-to-day basis, they are like senior executives, C-level executives or GMs, brand presidents all the time. I did need to find that personal style that worked for me. So I think for your students, now I can reflect back, I would say the biggest lesson I, I had at that time is that don't try to mimic others. As a, as a foreigner working here, um, you know, we, we don't speak the perfect, we're not native speakers, we're, we don't speak the perfect language. Uh, it's very easy for us to come kind of fall on a path that we try to be someone else, um, be the perfect person, speak perfect English. But that is your disadvantage. You, you, you can always improve, but you were never going to win to be a perfect perfect native speaker and you're never going to be winning a, you know win anything try to be someone else so i went through a period of time just to search for that leadership style that is authentic and true to me so i can be with myself and always better every day 
um, and really try to learn more about the communication skills and you know the, the thinking process of of the of the Americans and try to marry with my um, Chinese roots. Shot, we could probably end this interview right now. And you just said so much in that. <laughs> um, okay, let's go ahead and have a line. <laughs> no, we're not going to because I want to talk to you about a lot of things. Um, but but I, I love that you said that about uh-huh. not becoming someone else and really being yourself. And to be honest with you, look, I, I grew up in the U.S., but, you know, we all navigate things differently based on our differences that that are very aware to us from either a young age or as you go into mm-hmm. a new atmosphere where that difference becomes the forefront. So, you know, when I got to the point of going, I, I really do have to just love this spot I'm in, navigate it, leverage mm-hmm. what it is I know from, from my personal experiences mm-hmm. and make myself valuable. And, and I, you know, you saying that is exactly, you know, what I did. And, and it's nice to hear that from you as well. You know, when we look at businesses and we're looking at markets and here we are, we're COVID-19, this pandemic that's happening. What are some of the strategies you're seeing retail companies deploy during this pandemic? Mm. Um, Yeah, there are are a lot of common strategies or themes, I'll I'll say. Um, Just name a few, like a a lot of companies are, are showing up their liquidity because it's, it's uh, at the core, it is a liquidity crunch. So either like pulling down the credit line or issuing bonds or notes, like they, you know, backed by their real estate. So they are doing everything, try to, you know, have as much cash in their hands because no one knows how long this will last. And then at the same time, um, retailers and even the brands, they are cutting expense, either being laying off people, following people or cut back um, capex uh, or delayed projects, and then another strategy when it comes to pricing is really big. there's a, so much inventory in hand now with all the store closed. Um, so people are slashing price now, mm-hmm. try to convert as much as possible. Right. At the same time, everyone's trying to pivot online. So if you are a business which has much higher percentage online, that is great. But uh, unfortunately, a lot of the retailers, especially fashion retailers, like Nordstrom, I think have probably one third of their revenue um, comes from mm, online, like the Macy's, Coles, probably even less. So yeah, pivoting online, it is what you must do. But at this time, mm, it's hard because first the consumer's mind is not there buying apparel discretionary category and secondly for those traditional retailers uh, you know the, the the infrastructure they have the strategy the talent they have it just not they cannot ramp up these things fast enough to catch up online i think that's a great point where it's Online, I mean, really e-commerce was something that was there and, and, and constantly talked about to the point where people had the idea that it would break down brick and mortar to the point where brick and mortar wouldn't exist anymore. But when mm-hmm. you think about e-commerce now in the space we're in, it has to be more than me going on it in this two-dimensional way and clicking on an item. And I think we'll see the rise of, you know, companies like Obsess you know, AR where they're leveraging augmented reality. And, and there are brands that are already leveraging 
what they do, Tommy Hilfiger, Levi's. And so it no longer just becomes a two-dimensional e-commerce platform. I am now experiencing a store and a brand as if I were in a physical space. I think, the, you know, the Macy's of the world where you have e-commerce that represented such a small percentage of your business, you now need to look to these, these startups or this technology to make yourself relevant. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. I agree with you 100%. Until today, if you look at e-commerce, it's still like, especially retail fashion e-commerce, it's more still, it's a still two-dimensional space. There's no emotional connection. It's still like a huge catalog. The consumer needs to go on and search for everything or just browse through pages after pages. There are lots of innovations now. Like in China, the live streaming was already big, but now it is accelerating. And the live streaming in China is very different from the live streaming in the U.S. It's not like Instagram kind of live. Um, it is combined with e-commerce. You think about this is almost like a TV, TV shopping, but upgraded uh, into 21st century. So we have seen since the pandemic started in China, we have seen you know, all kinds of businesses use live streaming to sell. So live streaming is is is, is e-com at the same time. So we have like restaurants live stream their chef cooking from the kitchen, a dish, and then it is live streamed in the restaurant's uh, Timo store upfront. So while they were live streaming, the restaurant goer could literally sit at home and uh, purchase a takeout on their Timo uh, store and have it delivered later. So like things like this, like in China is, you know, it's kind of unique. I haven't seen a lot live streaming here in the U.S. because here live streaming is usually for like esports, for, for, for gaming. But maybe this is something we'll see more and more in the U.S. as well. Considering, you know, the, the cultural geopolitical differences, do, do you think that that impacts the ability of these strategies? Or do you actually, do you feel like, you know what, it doesn't matter. These strategies are universal and and they can apply in any region. Mm, Some of the strategies are more applicable than the others. Like, for example, live streaming. I don't think it's 100% applicable because over there in China, the digital ecosystem is very different. Uh, We have those dominant um, marketplace giants like like Tmall, like WeChat, and they already are drawing millions of millions traffic into their own own channels. So live streaming in those channels automatically bring traffic. And then even the conversion is small, sometimes it it accumulates to quite big sales. But I think in the US, Amazon is big, but a lot of the e-commerce, the the brands still have their their own e-commerce website. So how do you take a concept like live streaming in China and adopt here? I think you cannot do it 100% copy. There needs to be, you know, true to the market and consumer preference here. Mm, But I think the aspect of consumers want more engagement to a point, it's no longer just reading information or or seeing a still video, they want to have a real-time connection with, with, with the business. Like seeing 
like for example that that shoppable restaurant example i just give you know, right. you know we always want to see who is cooking my dish right you know like in the high-end restaurant you you pay for a kitchen tour probably but now hey you are you you are seeing who who just cooked your um a mala tofu for you you know for, right. from that kitchen so i think that aspect of engagement interaction is I think is 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 the key in that. So how can U.S. companies um, take that and cross pollinate an idea and make it work here in the U.S. I think that's a great idea because here you have to that point of, of just in the kitchen and, and food and and obviously this can relate to fashion, but now there's a connectivity to who the person that you never saw before doing something mm-hmm. that meant whatever it is it meant to you, your food, your, your clothing, or, or whatever that looks like. And so then once this is done and we're all engaging again, you do have a little more connectivity to this person. Cause you're like, I, you know, you were one of my points of interest when I was in self-isolation. So now for me out of self-isolation, am I more connected to this brand? Am I more connected to this business because of what they did during that time? Yeah, exactly. Um, I think speaking about fashion, and there are there are some local fashion businesses um, took the initiative to have their like store associates live stream some try-ons because the stores were closed. So um, and usually live streaming before the pandemic uh, was done by what we call like key opinion influencers. Uh, but now, because you know all the stores were shut down, a lot of times the brands are tapping into their store associates and employees to be live stream hosts. So we, like, I was watching the live stream of this um, local brand, which is called JMBY Jiangnan Fuyi. Their store associates. I were, love like, that brand. Yeah, we're wearing. Oh, you know that looks great. So they were like wearing masks. <laughs> And uh, they're like normal people, right? But they also said on the live stream screen, like how tall they are, you know, how much <laughs> their weight. So, and, and I was reading some of the comments um, people were doing. There was like, actually, like people liked it because they, you know, they, they say, well, this is not a model, but, you know, if they feel more authenticity in it because we're, you know, every of us, we're not model. So we want to see how a normal person like us, you know, even wearing a mask um, would look like in that specific outfit. So I think there's, there's a lot of um, emotional connection, I think, in this, to your point. You know, during the self-isolation, people are making very different connections with the brands. So think about the, the Jiang and Hu Yi example after people can go back to the store and if they find the store associate who did that uh, live streaming at that time uh, without a mask, you know, how happy they would be at that time. Right, right. It, do, it changes the, the entire human dynamic through that level of authenticity. Well, as we talk about the, the Chinese consumer, when I think about the Chinese luxury consumer, the purchasing of the Chinese luxury consumer, I mean, we, we saw the decrease of that happening, you know, I, I guess roughly what, what it would be Q2 of 2019. So we're, we're pretty much anniversarying when the, the trade wars started to happen. And, and we saw this decrease, especially in the U.S. and in any region, definitely New York, then probably our West Coast of the soft spending of this Chinese tourist. 
What do you think will happen now post COVID-19? Because, you know, as you know, when I think about it, I think we'll become far more local with how we engage with fashion and, and, and retail and, and all things like we'll really focus on our local economies. So how does the U.S. market still engage with the, with that customer knowing that this is a possibility? There, there are almost 420 million middle class Chinese consumers who are still on the way trading up their life. Okay. Um, so I don't think that momentum would come to a stall because of pandemic. But that said, I think there are a lot of headwinds for, for luxury brands. First, the tourist um, traffic that were in the stores um, in Milan, in New York, in Los Angeles, I, I, I personally, I don't think you will see the same level uh, coming back anytime soon. Like I remember during SARS in 2003, it took almost nine to 12 months for people to fully regain confidence to travel again. Um, so I think this is you know, something that the luxury brands need to prepare that how they can engage the Chinese consumers when they are not coming to, they're not traveling to the overseas stores. So I think first is the domestic, the Chinese domestic market becomes more important for the luxury brands. So you think about how you launch new product, um, how you look at the merchandising in China. Uh, secondly, how do you reach to that customer and uh, collect information? Because a lot of the brands were kind of shocked this time, like suddenly. And um, they, you know, for, for luxury brands, some of lux a lot of luxury brands in China, their store associates a lot of time actually have, um, have built personal connections to the frequent store visitors because, you know, if they have, they want some exclusive product or some new product, usually if they have good relationship with the store associate, the store associate probably would give them a call. So the store associates actually have the, the personal contact, have the personal contact with their uh, VIPs or frequent visitors. So uh, in, during the, when, this, when the, 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 the outbreak happened, a lot of those store associates reached out to those um, buyers and customers using WeChat. Now, now think about this, right? Like in the U.S., uh, we rely on pretty much newsletters um, to to reach out. Uh, in China, it's mm -hmm. it's it's WeChat, uh, it's Weibo, and Weibo is more mass. So WeChat potential is more 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 personal. So I think for the luxury brands, uh, no matter you know where they're headquartered, no matter you have your China office or not, no matter how you do your e-commerce, either you have your own website or on Tmall, you have to think about how now, from now, how do I kind of systemize the digital connection with my 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 Chinese consumers? And there are many ways to do that. Okay. At least one way. Can you give us one way that you can, you you think that we can give to the <laughs> when not sharing everything? Uh, no, there, there are many ways. I think one is, as I said, like WeChat. So um, WeChat official account or like mini program is is on on the front end. It's like 
how people get to you, read information, uh, buy something. But on the back end, it is a um, consumer data repository. So for brands, uh, if you don't have official account or if you are not, not considering WeChat, you'll need to get on it right away. And don't think about this as just a, a communication channel. Think about this is the, the portal of your ECRM. And for the other, for, for, for the bigger brand, you even need to think about is there a way you can connect that database somehow with a global database? Um, I know there are a lot of barriers in terms of regulate, regulatory like rules, data privacy, but you know you need to start to think about those because luxury customers do travel, as we all know. So you probably want to know where they have been, you know, in which of your stores globally. So those things. Uh, it should be on a digital roadmap for those luxury brands. Thank you. So that's the, the luxury Chinese consumer. And to your point, the, the middle class has grown and will continue to grow in that market. But then if we turn back and we go, okay, well, let's look at the U.S. and the U.S. fashion consumer. Do you think that they'll begin to value quality? over quantity and in doing so that impacts fast fashion brands like an H&M, like a Zara after we, we kind of come out of this, this COVID-19 situation. I, I think there, there will be implications, but exactly how, because there are different forces, exactly how it is going to pan out. I think it's still to be seen, but going back to 2008, when the financial crisis happened, what we observed, because I was just started um, at VF's corporate strategy team at that time, and what we observed was um, the value equation changed. Okay. People, people wanted to buy less. It is how much, how much more quality can you provide at the price point I can afford? either by better quality or better service. So, so and that's different, you know, category by category. So I do think um, this pandemic um, is a wake up call to a lot of us. Um, we are rethinking, do I need that, that many stuff? Uh, should I get better stuff in terms of quantity? But at the same time, um, I, you know, we also have a very large unemployment rate now. So exactly. I think the affordability, right, also goes down. And how quickly can can this recover? We don't know. So there may be some trading down momentum at the same time. So that's why I'm saying it is. It's hard to see exactly which force will balance the other force. But I think in general, um, you know, I have I have seen a lot of trend report and people are talking about. You know, we don't need that many stuff and how can we do better coming out of this and uh, live harmony with, uh, with, the, with the nature? I, I, I completely agree with you on, on all points. And, and I, I speak about the middle class, I think, agnosium to most people and, and how, honestly, fashion industries, luxury industry, we, we really need to focus on how to protect this group because once they lose discretionary income, it's mm -hmm. going to impact all of our businesses more than we really think. And we need, we need there to be an aspirational client. We need there to be this person who, it, you know, understands 
what a quality item feels like and and the desire to have it. Um, at the same time, you know, and this I say this when we whenever we talk about the the conversation of sustainability. If you are a person who you know, the, the what average household income, you know, three years ago in, in New York state was 27,000 for a family in, in the state of New York. You don't care about sustainability. You're trying to figure out just how to keep everyone in the family clothed and fed and, and sustainability doesn't become a thing for you. Right. To your point where everyone is, is in a state of, I don't know if I'll even, I'll have money. Mm-hmm. You're not necessarily yeah. looking for quality. You're trying to find what's the best, like where, how far can my money stretch to get me the things I need? Yes, exactly. So I do feel to a point that there is a, a much stronger demand for a better value equation at every price point. Yeah. Um, I think that's the challenge for a lot of department stores and retailers and kind of brands in the middle. If you are a me too, and not a lot of value added, and then you charge, even you charge, you know, not a lot, not, not, not expensive price. People will start questions say, why am I buying this? What, why do I get out of it? Right. And this is going to create a problem the rest of the year because, you know, to your earlier point and, and with, with, other uh, people I've spoken to here on the podcast and in, and in other places, we know that the rest of the year, because of the inventory load, will be a lot of discounting. I mean, I can go on on websites now just for home things or whatever, and, and it's things that just came out that they're already offering 35% off, 40% off just to get people shopping. So once we start down this path, you know, the, the coming back from it, will will be that much more difficult but it, it's something you might have to do to, to move through that inventory speaking of inventory you know gives me the other thought of this idea of shared economy business models that that really came to prominence over the last you know five to eight years you know where we saw the rise of you know the rent the runways but now there's a fear of touching things of of, of yeah. being around people what does what do you think this looks like for for those those business models, and are uh, just going to rethink this? Uh, that's excellent question. Um, I think the concept itself, a shared economy, has its longevity. Okay. In the long, yeah, I think in the mid to in, in the long run, because it's about uh, not owning things when you don't really need to own them all the time. It's about doing better for the economy for the nature. However, in the short term, like you said, there is a challenge, a short-term challenge, because people don't want to touch, there's hygiene concerns. So I think that is something, you know, business like ran wrong way, they will have to overcome, because if you cannot overcome this, you don't even have a business coming out of this. Right. And it's really going to be a lot of, you know, when I think of it from an operational perspective, and, and granted, you know, shared economy businesses, I've, I've always said, you know, we, you know, everyone says that they, they're better for sustainability and, and in that way. But I think, well, how much needs to go into cleaning this product so it can mm-hmm. be sold does impact the environment. Mm-hmm. But now it's not just going to be about cleaning the product. It's going to be about when it is shipped to a new client, 
how is it going to be packaged so that I feel super competent, confident that this has no whoop-de-woo on it or the heebie-jeebies or whatever that looks like, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a big challenge. Um, but but I think it's, um, it's because it's interesting that we're living in a very interesting time, I think. Again, I can think back in 2008 because rent runway, a lot of like Everland, a lot of those innovative business models we're seeing today, they kind of spun off out of the, the financial crisis, up, you know, after a couple of years after that. So, so I think there is a tremendous in innovation uh, that is going to come in, in our way. So it may not be the rent the wrong way kind of model for shared economy for apparel, like the model we're seeing today. But um, I hope maybe one of your students in the audience would have a great idea to, to, to create a different model, which is also a shared economy for apparel, but in a very different way to address all of, all of those issues. I hope that happens also. <laughs> so speaking of the future, what have you noticed and are there any commonalities among the way consumers are behaving between the U.S. and China that could really give us a, a positive outlook on the situation? Because, you know, I, I think everyone is in a state of like disaster is upon us and, and disaster will be long running. But, but I, I have to say there has to be opportunity here. Do you see any positives? Yeah, totally. Um, well, I'm always kind of short-term cautious, but long-term, I'm always an optimistic um, <laughs> person. So I think there are a couple of things uh, what I'm seeing here. Um, one is this pivoting online so all, for all the categories and, and industry. So how can you transform or digitize your business in every aspect? to meet that customer needs, no matter online and offline. Like in China, they say O2O, but online to offline, because that integration is happening much faster and easier from offline to online. I think in the US, we're still talking about this omni-channel because it is the case that here, the brick and mortar industry and the retail has a lot more history. So how do you connect together so I think that digital transformation, I think is a very positive um, trend now. And I call it like pulling the future forward much faster than, 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 than it was. Um, I think the second one is really about um, have an extremely distinct point of view in your product and in the branding. Um, we are seeing, you know, at least I'm seeing both in the US and um, in China, like we just talked about, you know, when people have less money or they feel less comfortable spending money, whatever they are buying, there needs to be something special in it. So uh, I think it's the same um, in China, right? A lot of the white collar job probably is not impacted, but think about those people who work in manufacturing or who own a small business in manufacturing. Um, those people's income will be impacted. So for them, what is going to, what they are going to buy needs to be you know worthy every dollar they spend so i think for brands who it mediocre who don't have a clear point of view will be going out whoever stays will be the one that is the most innovative and um, um, have clear point of view and can relate to customers 
And I think the third one I think is very interesting is is the way we arrange kind of product, um, the just in time buying, right? So we we the, the industry, the apparel industry, uh, was used to like plan a year ahead. Um, you know, we design a year ahead, we selling probably six months ahead, and then we dropping like three months ahead. We so you're seeing like summer clothes when it's still snowing in, in, in New York. I think that will change because the inventory issue we every time we run into this. So I think I'm seeing a lot of the a lot of the the retailers and brands now are are kind of re-elevating this this topic. Um, and the consumers want that as well because why do I want to buy a a summer clothes when I'm still in the middle of a snow? Right. So, so those kind of things, uh, I, I, I hope it's going to transform the apparel industry and fashion industry, make it truly a 21st century uh, industry. <laughs> because, because what we are doing now is still, you know, kind of the, the 100 year industrial uh, industrialization model. We're not in the 21st century model yet. So that's why I think there are a lot of positive outlook there from digital transformation. Um, to have a distinct point of view in merchandising and marketing, all the way to the back end supply chain. How do you arrange product? I think that if that of all of those things happen, I think we have much better future. Thank you so much. I I, I absolutely agree with you on the third point in in so many ways. I think I'm so tired of seasons and and as as the desire for something is so by now, you know, where now, we really don't need it. And it's, it is an antiquated process of how we look at it. So I want to close this out by asking you if you could let our listeners know how they can find out what you're doing or get in touch with you if they have questions, if there's a LinkedIn, a website for the How Consulting, how can they, they know what you're up to? Sure, you can always find me on LinkedIn. Um, if you search my name, uh, Xia Feng, X-I-A-F-E-N-G, um, you will find me. And then uh, I'm working on my website, so it will be up running. It will be www.thehowconsulting. How is H-O-W, uh, How Consulting. So um, I'm, I'm very happy to um, keep um, engaging uh, the conversation with you and your students. As I always said, um, I love to talk to um, young talent and uh, to help them in any way I can. Thank you so much for your time today. We wish you continued success and even more success for the launch of your brand, uh, your consulting uh, brand. And we just appreciate your time and your knowledge. Thank you so much. And we look forward to speaking to you again. Thank you, Chris. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Retail Revolution. A very special thank you to everyone who has helped make this podcast possible. Our guests, our students, and fellow faculty at Parsons School of Design, especially in such an extraordinary and unprecedented time. Our theme music was composed by Spencer Powell. Be well and stay tuned for our next episode.